The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we are in fellowship with the Lord, that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are prepared for a study of Scripture this morning. So we always take a few moments of silent prayer for the opportunity to use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, which states, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So at the instant that we admit or acknowledge our sins to him, we are forgiven. We recover fellowship, the filling of the Holy Spirit, and we are prepared to study his word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So let's begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together as a body of believers under the freedom in this nation that we are enabled to study your word. Father, we continue to pray for the leadership in this nation during this time of of war against terrorism that you would give our president, our congressional leaders, our military leaders the wisdom they need to uh, execute this war. Father, we pray for our nation that they would have the fortitude to stay with it that it may take years before this war is won. Father, we pray for the members of the military, both those from this congregation and all in general, that you would watch over them, that you would give them the courage they need in combat. And for those who give the ultimate sacrifice, we pray that you would comfort their families and that in the midst of this, there would be many opportunities for uh, the gospel to be presented and for many to respond and receive the free gift of eternal life. Now, Father, as we continue our study this morning, we pray that you would help us to understand these things, to uh, clearly see what your plan is for our life, and that we might be challenged and encouraged to push forward to spiritual maturity. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. 
1 John chapter 2, verse 28. And here this morning we finally, after, must uh, have been a year and a half almost, we get into the main body of the epistle. Now it's important for us, as I stated in the first hour in our study in 1 Corinthians, it's important whenever you read anything to have some idea of where you're going, where you're coming from. Well, I had a slight <coughs> diversion this morning. We talked about reading and how you read. Then whenever you read anything, at least something technical, something non-fiction, you should have some idea of where you are going. You should always read an introduction, and you should always skim the conclusion before you get there. Uh, read the introduction to find out where the author says he is going. Read the conclusion to get a summary of how he got there. And then just sort of skim over the other chapters. That gives you that road map. So as you read, you read with more intelligence. The same is true when we look at Scripture. And this is one reason I take the time to, uh, especially when we go th- from one division to another, to just review the overall structure so we know how the author is thinking and what his emphases are. Too often when we get focused on the details of the text and we spend uh, two or three hours on one verse, we lose the uh, forest for the trees. We're so busy looking at the leaves that we no longer understand how the leaf relates to the tree or the tree relates to the forest. So we constantly have to go back and forth between the details and then do some synthesis at the overall structure. Now, John has a unusual structure to this epistle, really. We have a general introduction that has three parts from one one down through two twenty seven. We have the prologue in the first four verses. So chapter one, one through four gives us a prologue where John introduces the basic theme and that is fellowship. It is fellowship that is related first of all to the doctrine of the apostles. He says if you have to have fellowship with us, meaning the disciples and the apostles based on the doctrine that they taught about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Then in the second section of the introduction, we have a, the stress is placed from 1-5 down through uh, 2-17, or 2-11, down through 2-11, the stress is placed on the importance of fellowship with God and staying in fellowship with God. That it is only by abiding in fellowship that we grow. That is the place of growth. The issue is not simply using 1 John 1, 9 and getting back in fellowship, but it is abiding in fellowship. And the key word that we see in this section is the command to abide, as Jesus stated it in John chapter 15. And then from 2.12 down through 2.27... The emphasis is on the stages of spiritual growth and advance from spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood and the different issues in the different stages of spiritual advance. Now, the emphasis in all of these sections is on fellowship and the importance of abiding. And then the main message begins in verse 28 and extends down through to chapter 4:19. So this is the main body of this epistle, and the main message is that the believer must mature 
to the level of loving God and loving one another if he is going to be bold before the judgment seat of Christ. He must reach a level of spiritual maturity in order to be bold before the judgment seat of Christ. And this begins and is introduced in the first verse of this section, which is 1 John 2, verse 28. Here John says, Now, and now little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Now, there's a tremendous amount in this one verse, and I'm hoping that in order to see how it fits into the Christian life and our motivation, that we can make it all, cover it all in the next hour. John begins, and now, and he uses a construction that is simply a form of transition. In the Greek, it is noon, and it indicates moving from one point to another. It is not, even though noon sometimes or often has a temporal meaning, here it is used simply as a means of transition, and that is indicated by the use of the word technia, little children. As I have stated before, this marks the division as you move from one section to another in this epistle. Often he changes the subject when he addresses them again as little children. Now, this is not the same word that we find over in chapter in chapter 2. Here we have the Greek technia, T-E-K-N-I-A, and that is a term of endearment from the Apostle John, who is their pastor, to the congregation. This is how he is expressing himself and his love for them is by teaching them what is necessary to advance to spiritual maturity. He is not, this term does not refer to them as spiritual infants, but simply as those who are under his pastoral care. He says, and now little children, and here we have the primary command, and this is the primary command, I think, of the Gospel of John. Abide in him. And it is a present active indicative of the verb minna, which we have studied many times, uh, that goes back to our study in John chapter 15, where Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me bears much fruit. And there we saw and have seen many times in our study of minnow that this is a word related to fellowship to ongoing, continued intimacy with the Lord Jesus Christ based on the Word of God, based on application of His Word, staying in fellowship. Uh, and when we sin, we keep short accounts with Him, and we confess our sins, and we're instantly forgiven, First John 1, 9, and we are restored to fellowship. But it's not like baby believers who bounce back and forth in and out of fellowship. You don't grow by bouncing back and forth in and out of fellowship. You grow by abiding in Christ, by remaining in fellowship, by staying in fellowship, by applying doctrine consistently, thinking according to the Word of God. So John says, and now, little children, abide in him. This introduces the main idea, the main theme of the section from 2.28 down through 4.19. It says, now, little children, abide in him. And then he gives a purpose clause indicated by uh, the Greek particle hina. 
indicates the purpose. Why are we to abide in him? This is important. You don't just abide in him simply to grow. You don't just abide in him uh, simply to glorify God. There is more, more to it than that. There are many dimensions to this, and the one that John is emphasizing here is for the purpose that when he appears, we may have confidence. That when he appears, we may have confidence. Now, there are two words that are important for us to understand here. The first is the uh, subjunctive, the uh, present act passive subjunctive of phanerao, which is often used of either the rapture or the second coming. You have two Greek words here that we want to emphasize. One is the verb phanerao, P-H-A-E. N-E-R-O-O, and the other is the last word in the um, English, the next to last word in the Greek, is that is his coming, which is the Greek word parousia, P-A-R-O-U-S-I-A. Now, parousia and phanerao are words that are general terms for the coming of Christ. Context is going to determine whether they refer to the rapture of the church or whether they refer to the second coming of Christ. The rapture is imminent. We have studied the imminency of the rapture. Scripture teaches that Jesus Christ can return for the church at any moment. The difference between the rapture and the second coming is that at the rapture, Jesus Christ is coming in the clouds for his bride and he returns to heaven. John chapter 14, Jesus says that I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, you may be also. And the point is that if Jesus were coming down from heaven and picking the church up on the way and headed to earth at the second coming, which is when he comes to the earth, then uh, Jesus would not be preparing a heavenly place for us. John 14 indicates that, that the believer's destiny is in heaven where Jesus Christ is. But at the second coming, Jesus comes to the earth. At the rapture, he returns to heaven. So the rapture is for believers only. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter where your church membership is. It doesn't matter where you live. It doesn't matter uh, whether you're carnal or whether you're spiritual. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ in the church age, then at the rapture, you are going to be instantly taken off of the planet and to heaven. At the second coming, Jesus Christ returns to the earth with his bride for the purpose of judgment and the destruction of the Antichrist, the false prophet, and he will cast the Antichrist, false prophet, and Satan into uh, the bottomless pit at that point at the end of the tribulation and institute his kingdom on the earth, his 1,000-year rule and reign called the millennium. Now, that just gives us a brief overview. So when John says this, the context is that he is addressing church-age believers. And now little children, and they are church-age believers, abide in him so that when he appears, and for us that means at the rapture, when he appears in the clouds, he will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together to be with him in the clouds. That is the rapture, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame. 
Now, why would we shrink away from him in shame? The reason is that what the event that immediately follows the rapture for the church-age believer is the judgment seat of Christ, the judgment seat of Christ. And this is explained in two key passages in the New Testament. And the first is in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10 states, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, this is not referring to our eternal destiny. That is already settled. We are in heaven. This has to do with our roles and responsibilities in the millennial kingdom. It has to do with rewards for spiritual growth, not for spiritual service. Now, there's always a difference here. You always have people say that, well, rewards are based on how many people you lead to the Lord, how much money you give, how much you pray, and and um, that is all part of our priesthood. Rewards are related to our advance to spiritual maturity. As we advance to spiritual maturity, of course, that is going to impact and affect our the function of our priesthood. It's going to impact all of those things related to our priesthood, such as witnessing and giving and, and all of the other things that relate to our priesthood. But it's not based on, on that. It's based on our spiritual growth. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, in order to understand this, we have to look a little more at the context. Let's go back to verse 6. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6, we read, Therefore, being always of good courage, and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. That is, while we are living in time, in our physical body, we're absent from the Lord. And then Paul says, for we walk by faith and not by sight. That is the principle for the spiritual life. We are to walk by faith and not by sight. Faith emphasizes trust in the Word of God. Faith means that the Word of God is more real to you than your experience than your feelings, than your circumstances. When the Word of God is more real to you than the events of our lives, then we are walking by faith and not by sight. Verse 8, Paul says, We are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. This is our sixth spiritual skill or stress buster. This is what I call the personal sense of our eternal destiny. We know where we're headed. We know that our citizenship is in heaven. We know that we have an eternal destiny, that our, that our destiny is to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. And therefore, because our focus is on heaven, we want to be there. But we understand that there is a purpose for our life and time here on earth. It is a training ground. It is where we are developing our maturity so that we have the capacity and the ability to rule and reign with him during the millennial kingdom. There is a purpose to this. It's like boot camp in the military. How well we do is going to determine what our position is after the, after the judgment seat of Christ. So we prefer, if we've reached that stage where we are focusing on eternal things, we prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. 
Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Now, it is in that context, then, that Paul says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ where we're going to be recompensed. Now, this is the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. And the word Bema was a term that Paul took over from the uh, jurisprudence of Greek culture, and it refers to the raised or elevated seat where the magistrate or the tribunal would sit and execute his decision-making in both uh, civil and criminal trials. In judicial settings, this was the seat of the judge or the tribunal. Now, in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we have the statement that that uh, this is going we're going to be recompensed according to what he has done, what the believer has done, and this is the Greek word proso, what he has practiced, what has continuously been a, a, a practice of this individual's life. So God is going to evaluate us on that basis, and then there is going to be a, a reward or recompense for that. Now let's look at another passage that uses the same word proso because we have to understand the background of the concept of inheritance in order to put all this together. I have had the opportunity to teach this material several times when I've been out on conference, but this is the first time I've had a chance to teach some of this to you. So we're going to take some things that we have already studied about inheritance and we're going to put this together in a new way with a couple of new passages and relate that to our preparation for ruling and reigning in the millennial kingdom. Galatians 5:19-21 explains the uh, practices, explains the manifestations of the sin nature. Verse 19 states, Now the deeds of the flesh, that is the works of the flesh, the production of the flesh, are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envyings, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this is an important passage to look at because the average person looks at this, looks at that last phrase in verse 21 that says those who practice such things, and that's the same word we have over in Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, proso. Those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And most people want to interpret inherit the kingdom of God as a statement that is equivalent to entering into heaven. Now, we have studied this both here and in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we are well educated to the fact that inheriting the kingdom does not mean the same thing as entering into heaven. If it did, if entering into heaven was based on not practicing these deeds, then salvation would be based on avoiding certain practices, and that would be a salvation based on works. So in Galatians chapter 5, we learn that those who practice these things, those who have a continuous habit pattern of living on the basis of the sin nature, may forfeit inheritance, not salvation, but inheritance. Now, let's look at a couple of other passages in order to put this together. Let's go, first of all, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 
1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll look at verses... Um, We'll start at the beginning of the chapter and skip down to the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6 tells us that, that believers have a destiny that's related to judgment. The problem in, the, in Corinth at this time was that they were, as part of the divisions and dissension in the church, they would take one another if somebody felt like they had a uh, problem, that they would uh, go to court. They would take them to court. They would become a litigious society, much as we are. And they would take other believers to civil court before the magistrate at the Bema in order to solve their differences. And Paul challenges them on this and tells them that basically under no conditions is a believer to take another believer to court. Because an unbeliever doesn't have the right frame of reference to be able to adjudicate when there are differences between believers. But he says some interesting things in the process. In verse 1 he states, Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? See, believers are eventually going to judge the world. We are going to be placed in a position where we are going to uh, judge other believers, judge the world, and that will take place in the millennium. And he goes on to say, And if the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Furthermore, verse 3, Do you not know that we shall judge angels? See, this is our destiny. So in order to be able to properly judge angels and the world, we have to be prepared. We have to go through a training ground, and that is part of the purpose of living life right now, learning to have victory over our sin nature, learning to abide in Christ, and so that we are prepared for our future roles and responsibilities in the millennial kingdom. Now skip down to a difficult, uh, difficult passage in verse 9. Now, this may be new to some of you, and I don't have, not going to take the time to go through every exegetical detail here, but I want to make sure that you understand the thrust. Paul says, do you, and here he uses a second person plural. It's always important to pay attention to the little details of Scripture, such as whether or not it's a singular or plural. In the English, it's hard to tell. Should have had a southerner translate it. Or do you all not know? See, that makes it more clear. That's what it should be. Do you all not know? that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Again, it's a second-person plural. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Notice how similar this list is to the list we have over in Galatians 5:19 through 21. Fornication, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuality, thieves, covetous, drunkards. These are the same classifications, the same categories that we have in Galatians 5:19 through 21. And the same thing is said about this group, that these shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, the way this is normally taken 
is that that means that if you continue to do these things, then you weren't really saved, and so you're not going to be, you're not going to get into heaven, because if you're really saved, then you don't continue to practice these things. But that violates the whole principle of salvation by grace. And then in verse 11, Paul says, and such were some of you. Now, I want you to look at the overhead here, and I'm going to try to diagram this. The you is a second-person plural. So we're going to draw a circle here, the large circle, and this is y'all. This is the entire congregation at Corinth. Now, we already know from our study of Corinthians in the first hour and our study of this passage at other times that they are called carnal. They are fleshly. The Greek word is sarkikos, which means they are living according to the sin nature. The Greek word for, for sin nature is sarks. They are living according to the sin nature, and there is just a minority of believers in this congregation that are actually applying doctrine and staying in fellowship and advancing to spiritual maturity. So you have a situation where you have maybe 5% are advancing in, in their spiritual growth, and you have 95% are carnal. Now, if I, I may not remember the terminology here correctly. I'm stretching back to about 8th grade math, but I think it was something like a Venn diagram. I think that's what they called them. We're going to have this large circle represent the whole congregation, and then we're just going to draw in a small circle here, and this represents a subset of the whole, and that is our 5% of spiritual believers who are advancing to spiritual maturity. Now, this whole crowd that we know about, they're involved in all kinds of carnality. They're involved in uh, fornication and and immorality, uh, going down to the uh, temple of uh, Aphrodite and getting involved in fornication with the temple prostitutes. They're involved in uh, gluttony. They're involved in... Uh, one, at least, was involved in a form of incest that even shocked the unbelievers in Corinth. And um, so he is, and the whole church acted like, well, this was no big deal. So there were all kinds of sins that were going on in the congregation, and Paul classified them as carnal. They were saved in a background in a, in a harbor town, a port town in Corinth that had a reputation in the ancient world of being one of the uh, wildest places in the ancient world, sort of a combination of Las Vegas, Los Angeles, and uh, New York. Just some of the uh, worst behavior you could ever imagine. Any sin was okay. So Paul says, now, some of you were... In this category, some of you were fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexual, thieves, covetous, drunkards, etc. Some of you were that. That's the sum is the 5% that's spiritual. But the rest of them are still living like unbelievers. Their overt behavior is still carnal. Their overt behavior is still immoral. Their overt behavior is still like that of the unbelievers. All the other unbelievers are all the unbelievers living in Corinth. So Paul says, and such were some of you, but you all. See, you got to follow those second person plurals. He says, such were some of you. That is, some of you lived like that, but now you're not. 
but most of you are. See, the 95% are carnal, and they're still living like unbelievers, but some of you, the 5%, are no longer living that way. Such were some of you, but you all were washed, but you all were sanctified, but you all were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, in verse 11, Paul goes back to what he emphasized in that opening prayer in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and that is their positional reality. They are all sanctified. They are all justified. They are all believers, but only some of them are advancing. They were all washed, but only some of them, only a minority of adva- are advancing. And so Paul is warning the rest of them that if you continue in the carnal behavior, then you are going to uh, uh, jeopardize your eternal rewards and your inheritance. Now, this is made clear that there are many believers who do lose eternal rewards, In a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, which deals with the judgment seat of Christ. There we read, according to the grace of God which was given to me, that is the Apostle Paul, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. That foundation is the gospel, the Lord Jesus Christ. And another is building on it. That is another pastor. Timothy came and then Titus came. These were other pastors who built on that foundation of the gospel of the cross. But each man must be careful, that is, each individual believer must be careful how he builds on it. See, once you trust Christ as Savior, that's the foundation. Now, you have to build on that your spiritual life. And that spiritual life is eventually going to be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. So you have to be careful about the decisions you make in life, about the priorities that you have in life. Is is doctrine the highest priority in your life? See, if you're a believer that's going to advance to spiritual maturity, you're going to realize that that doesn't happen by showing up in Bible class on occasion. You realize that the Word of God must become your life. This is not something optional. This is something mandatory. And everything else in life is organized around the priority of Bible doctrine. So we read here that no man can lay a foundation other than one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation, see, as we go through life, we're going to make decisions. We don't always know when we're in fellowship or when we're out of fellowship. Sometimes we do. Uh, When it deals with more overt sins, we definitely do. But sometimes we are, are, are not sure. We can't tell. We can't evaluate our own lives. But we're going to build. We are going to go through life. We're going to spend time learning the Word of God. We're going to spend time applying doctrine. Sometime we're going to apply doctrine. We're really out of fellowship. Other times we're going to be applying doctrine. We're going to be in fellowship. We're going to construct something, the edifice of our life, over the remainder of our life. Now, all of these works that we do are categorized by Paul as gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. Now, gold, silver, and precious stones have ongoing, eternal value. Wood, hay, and straw is temporal. It can be easily, they can be easily destroyed. Now, 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 16 is not about salvation. See, they all have the same foundation, which is Jesus Christ. But what we're going to see here is some receive rewards and some don't. Verse 13, each man's work will become evident. There will become a time when our life is going to be evaluated. It's going to become clear what we've done in the power of God the Holy Spirit and what we've done in the power of the sin nature. 
The day will show it. The term the day is a technical term for the day of judgment. It's the judgment seat of Christ, according to 2 Corinthians 5.10. The day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire. So here's the image. It's like building a house. And part of that house is built with imperishable substances, and part of it is built with perishable and hidden away in all of the perishable in those wooden two-by-fours and in the shingles and in the rafters. There's gold, there's silver, and precious stones. But the only way to get it out is to burn down the whole thing. So it, it, the house is burned down, and all the wood, all the straw, all the hay, everything else that's, that, that, that's combustible is going to burn up, but what's left is going to be that which has eternal value that which we take with us into the eternal state, that which we take with us into the millennial kingdom. That is what is the basis for our rewards. So it is as if everything in our life is put to the torch, and that torch tests the quality. And there the Greek verb is dokimazo, and that has to do with demonstrating what has value. See, this isn't a, a negative judgment. The focus here isn't to reveal what burned up. It isn't to reveal our failures. It is to reveal what has been produced of eternal value in our lives by God the Holy Spirit. The day will show it because it is revealed by fire, and the fire itself tests or evaluates the quality of each man's work. Verse 14, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. Notice, you're not salvation is a gift. You're not rewarded for a gift. This is not talking about salvation. This is talking about rewards for spiritual advance. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. But if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved. See, he doesn't lose his salvation. Someone who has put their faith alone in Christ alone, no matter how big a failure they are in the spiritual life, no matter how badly they screw up, no matter how consistently they continue to live like an unbeliever, they do not lose their salvation, but they will lose rewards. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. And then Paul asked the question, do you not know that you are a temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? And that is to focus on the fact that we are involved in living a life that glorifies God. So the issue is rewards. The issue is not sin here. The issue is works, the production in our lives. Are we walking by the God the Holy Spirit, Galatians 5.16, or according to the sin nature? So believers are going to be evaluated on the basis of our walk by means of God the Holy Spirit, or whether we have lived according to the sin nature. Some believers are going to receive rewards, but there is a group of believers who are not only uh, not going to receive rewards, they are going to suffer loss. Something is going to be taken away from them. Not eternal life, but something is going to take away, be taken away from them. And that is what John refers to in 1 John 2.28 as shame. Because these believers, when the Lord Jesus Christ appears, and they know that they're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, there will be shame. They will be embarrassed. There will be a profound shame because they wasted their life. They wasted their time. They wasted the opportunities that God gave them to advance to spiritual maturity. They might have been a success 
during their life. They might have uh, had a successful family life. They might have had a good marriage. They might have had a great education. They might have had a good business. They might have been very moral people, but they are going to suffer loss because they fail to grow and advance in the spiritual life. Now, before we go on, I want to look back at one more passage to pull this together in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. Well, let's look at the context, verse 16. Romans 8, 16 and 17. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit. That is, this is a nonverbal assurance from God the Holy Spirit to every believer that we are children of God. That is, we are saved. How do you become a child of God? By accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior, faith alone and Christ alone. For as many as received him, to them gave he the power to be called the sons of God. You are not a child of God simply by birth. God is not the father of everybody. Uh, God is only the father of those who, who have put their faith alone in Christ alone. Now, John, uh, Paul says, the Spirit bears witness that we are children of God. Now, look at verse 17. This is very important. Some of you have done this when we've covered this before. Others of you weren't here. But we have to repunctuate this verse. You see, there's a problem with punctuation, and that is that often it is the reflection of a theological interpretation by the translator. Now, there is no punctuation in the original Greek text. In fact, they didn't even put spaces between words. They just all ran together, and punctuation was accomplished through words that were embedded in the text. And so we have to look at how this is structured in the Greek to understand how this is to be translated. The way you have it in your English, and if children, comma, heirs also, comma, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ, now, that phrase, heirs of God and, and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ, is connected in the middle with that word and, which is a conjunction and joins them together. And in the way that is punctuated, it looks as if heirs of God and fellow heirs or joint heirs with Christ are synonymous terms. But I want you to notice that the next clause says, if indeed we suffer with him. Now, if we suffer with him is a condition. That's what if is. It's a conditional particle. Now, if becoming an heir of God, and if heir of God and joint heir with Christ are the same thing, then it is conditioned upon suffering with Christ. That's not a salvation that's free. That's a salvation based on doing something, that you're a children with God and an heir only if you suffer with Christ. Well, you see, this verse should be punctuated differently. There are two categories of inheritance mentioned here. It should be translated or punctuated, if children, heirs also, heirs of God, comma, and joint heirs with Christ, no comma, if we suffer with him. See, we become an heir of God at the instant of salvation, and we inherit eternal life. But we only become a joint heir with Christ if we suffer with him. That is, if we follow Christ in terms of the spiritual life and advancing to spiritual maturity. You don't become a joint heir with Christ simply by virtue of faith alone and Christ alone. You become an heir of God, but advanced inheritance blessing comes only as a result of growing to spiritual maturity. 
Now, there is another word that we have to look at in all of this, or another concept that we have to look at. And to do that, I want to jump ahead into Revelation. We're going to take a look at the what takes place at the end of time. Revelation 19, 7 through 10. This takes place during the um, marriage of the Lamb when we return with Jesus Christ. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. See, that's what we are doing through spiritual growth today, is making ourselves ready for the marriage supper of the Lamb. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. That's the result of the judgment seat of Christ. The church is clothed in fine linen. Then he said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Then I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours. Let's skip down to the next chapter. The next chapter we see the results of this. And this is the judgment by church-age believers of tribulation saints. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. These are tribulation believers, tribulation saints, who are martyred. And they are also classified as those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Well, who is going to execute judgment here? This is the church-age believer who comes back as the bride of Christ and is going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. Now, earlier in Revelation, we have another important passage, Revelation 3.5, at the end of one of the letters to the seven churches. The Lord tells the church, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments. Now, these are the white garments that the bride is clothed with there that we just read about in Revelation 19. And this belongs to the overcomer. He who, overco- he who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Now, the overcomer is not the believer. It is a classification of believer. This is the same believer who is going to uh, receive rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Well, let's look at one other passage. Skip ahead. Revelation 20, verses 5 and 6. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. So the first resurrection has three components or three ranks. The first was the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the first fruits. The second rank was the church-age believers. And the third rank is tribulation martyrs. That's the first resurrection. And then verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Ah, now we're getting into some new material here. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. The way most of us read that, we read it like this. Blessed and holy is the one who has a role in the first resurrection. In other words, who's there? Somebody who got resurrected. You were either a... A church-age believer or a tribulation saint. Then it says, over these, the second death has no power. Well, wait a minute. Why would why would the writer say that in Revelation 20, 
that the second death has no power. Of course it does. And we would say that's by implication. These are believers. Of course the second death has no power. And then it goes on to, the verse goes on to say, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Well, we need to stop a minute and we need to talk about this word translated heart. It's the Greek word meros. It's a Greek word meros and it doesn't mean part in the sense of a role, but it has to do with a part or portion and was a technical term used in a will to describe the inheritance that would go to the heir. It's the same word. It's the same word that the prodigal son uses when he goes to his father and he says, I want my portion. I want my inheritance. It's the same word used there. It's also used in another important passage, and let's hold your place here in Revelation and turn back with me to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. This is a passage we've spent a lot of time in over the years. The upper room when Jesus is washing the feet of the disciples. And it is a picture, as we have said, the complete washing of the believer was a picture of salvation, and the washing of the feet is a picture of the need for confession of sin. There are two different words that are used here for washing. The complete washing was a Greek word, luao, which had to do with with a, a full bath. And that was the word that was used in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. That was the word that was used to describe the complete bath, the complete washing of the high priest when he is inaugurated or initiated into his role as high priest. But after that, every time the high priest came in to function in his priesthood in the temple, he had to wash his hands and his feet at the labor. When he washed his hands and his feet at the labor, that partial washing was described by the Greek word nipto. So even though the Hebrew did not have enough of a... Uh, enough different words to distinguish between a full bath and a partial bath, the Jewish translators of the Septuagint understood that distinction, and they made that clear in the Septuagint. Remember, the Septuagint is the Bible that the disciples use. They quote from it consistently in the New Testament. So Jesus said, comes to Peter, and he's going to wash Peter's feet, and, and Peter says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? You're not going to wash my feet. And um, look at verse verse 7. Jesus said, What I do you do not realize now. In other words, I'm illustrating something. I'm illustrating a spiritual principle you don't understand fully right now. And Peter said in verse 8, Never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus answered, if, and he uses the term nipto. And Jesus answered and said, If I do not wash your feet, nipto, you have no part with me. Now that's that same word that we have in the in the parable of the prodigal son, and in Revelation chapter 20. It is that word meros. And usually the way this is taught, and I taught it this way for years until I did this, did a more detailed study, that when, when Jesus says, you will have no part with me, he is telling Peter, you will have no inheritance with me. The way it's normally taken is that, that Jesus is saying, Peter, if you don't let me wash, wash my feet, you're not going to have have any participation in my ministry. And it's taken in a, in a more generic sense. But meros has to do with, with an inheritance. And what Jesus is telling Peter is, if I'm not allowed 
to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from your sin day in and day out in your Christian life, then all your production is going to be from the flesh. It's not going to be from the Holy Spirit. And there will be no basis for reward. There will be no divine good. And there will be loss at the judgment seat of Christ. And there will be no inheritance. That's what Jesus Christ is saying to Peter. Peter, if you don't let me cleanse you. See, the key word here is cleansing. In 1 John chapter 1, too often the focus is on confession. But the key word isn't in that chapter isn't confession. In 1 John 1, 7, it's the blood of Christ continually cleanses us from all sin. That's the basis for all purification. And in 1 John 1, 9, we confess our sins, and God's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us, katharizo, to purify us from all unrighteousness. And that word katharizo is the word that is used again and again and again in the Greek to translate the concept of atonement and cleansing in the Old Testament uh, ritual in the t- tabernacle and temple service. And the point is that for the priest to function in his priesthood, he has to always be cleansed, repeatedly cleansed, in order to function in the temple, because the temple is sanctified ground, it's holy ground, it is where God dwells in the Shekinah glory in the Ark of the Covenant. And in order to enter into his presence and to serve him in the temple, the priest has to be cleansed. Now, I don't have time to go through all of this, but but some people want to say that you don't have to confess your sins today. You don't have to be cleansed because, um, after all, it was all taken care of at the cross. And there's many different groups that, that believe that. And most of them are people who are not dispensationalist. And, and the reason they do that is because, and part of the, the dynamics of the, the, the theological understanding is for them, Israel has been replaced by the church. That's replacement theology. But as premillennial dispensationalists, and by that I mean we believe that Jesus Christ is going to come back before the millennium. He will establish his thousand-year rule and reign on the earth. And then at the end of that, there will be a final judgment. Because we believe that, that there is this future literal 1,000-year rule and reign of Christ, we look at passages like Ezekiel chapter 40 to, to chapters 40 to 47 which describe the function of a millennial temple in Jerusalem. And there will be this millennial temple that has dimensions that are one mile square. And there the Shekinah glory of God will dwell in Israel and there will be a new Jewish priesthood. And in that Jewish priesthood is born during the millennium and they still have a sin nature. And therefore, they have to be ceremonially cleansed in order to serve in the temple. So what we have here is that, think of this time-wise, in, in the past, in the past, in the, in the uh, dispensation of Israel, priests had to be ceremonially cleansed to come into the temple to serve as priests. In the future dispensation, which once again goes back to not the Mosaic Law, but the, 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 the new prescriptions in Ezekiel for the worship in the new temple, priests then also, and it's interesting that there are going to be animal sacrifices in the millennial kingdom, but those are not animal sacrifices related to atonement. They are animal sacrifices related to the sin offering and the guilt offering, that is, sacrifices that had to do with uh, purification from sins after salvation. So those priests have to perform guilt offerings and sin offerings in the millennial temple in order to be cleansed from their sins before they can function as priests in the temple. Okay, now I've 
thrown out a lot of different strands this morning. Let's pull them together. Remember, when we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 10 and following, we talked about the judgment seat of Christ. At the end of that, the last verse, I didn't have it on the screen, but the last verse was, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? See, our physical body at the instant of salvation is sanctified. It is set apart for the indwelling of the Shekinah glory. Now, in the Old Testament, the Shekinah glory dwelt in the tabernacle. And in order for the priest to function in relationship to the dwelling of God in the temple, he had to be cleansed. The same thing is going to happen in the future millennium. The same principle is true today, except today you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ are a believer priest. You are the priest and your body is the temple for the dwelling of the Shekinah glory of Jesus Christ. And in order for your priesthood to function in relationship to your temple, you have to have cleansing from post-salvation sins. That's why the operative word in 1 John 1, 9 is not confession, it is cleansing. There is always a means, though, for the believer in every dispensation to be cleansed from post-salvation sin. When you sin, we are rendered uh, unclean, and we can't function in regard to our priesthood. And if we can't function in regard to the priesthood, then there is no, there will be no gold, silver, and precious stones for uh, no work of the Holy Spirit to be rewarded for, and there will be a loss of rewards, therefore, there will be no part, no inheritance, as Jesus said to Peter, no portion. So that begins to tie it all together. And then we come to a fascinating passage in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Uh, let's, uh, let's skip to Revelation 21, 6 through 8. Skip past the great white throne judgment. We've covered that. That doesn't relate to believers. We're just going to focus on believers. Revelation 21, 6 through 8. Then he said to me that he here is the Lord Jesus Christ. He said to me, that is the Apostle John. It is done. This is at the end of the age. This is after the great white throne judgment. We're now in the new heavens and the new earth. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. See, this is salvation. It is without cost. See, you work for a reward, but salvation is free. So in Revelation 21, the focus, 21, 6, the focus is on salvation. I will give to the one who thirsts the water of life without cost. There is no cost for salvation. It is free. It is Christ did all the work. However, there is a place for the believer's works or production. Verse 7, Jesus said, he who overcomes. We looked at Revelation 3, 5, that the overcomer is the one who receives the, the, the white garment, who comes back with the Lord to reign. He who overcomes will inherit these things. So verse 7 tells us that the subject is inheritance. Because when I look at verse 8, it's going to blow your mind. You have to look at verse 7 to find out what the subject is. The subject is inheritance. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Verse 8, But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars. Now let's stop there. Now where have we seen that list before? 
We've seen that list in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we saw that list in Galatians chapter 5. And in those lists, we saw that the person who practiced those things would not inherit the kingdom of God. And the person who practices those things is going to be a failure at the judgment seat of Christ. But see, the way we normally read Revelation 21.8 is that this is a person who's really an unbeliever, and by his life he demonstrated that he really wasn't a believer. And we read the next clause, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. We, we, we read that their destiny will be in the lake that burns with fire, or their role will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. But part is the same word we just studied, hameros. Meros does not have to do with role or destiny. It has to do with inheritance. Their inheritance will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. See, we just studied that the people who practice these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, God has established from eternity past what your rewards are going to be. But if they're all burned up at the judgment seat of Christ, we saw, that those who have everything burned up will suffer loss. They won't lose salvation, but they're going to lose something. Well, they're going to lose those rewards that God would have given them. Well, what's going to happen to those rewards? Well, Revelation 21.8 tells us what happens to those rewards. They're going to be flushed down the cosmic commode into the lake of fire and where they will burn up because you wasted them. That is the thrust of this passage. So what we learn, let's go back to 1 John chapter 2, verse 28. First John tells us that this is the thrust of what he, everything he is going to say in the next three chapters. The command is to abide in him. Why? Because abiding in him means to stay in fellowship. That's where we, that's the place of growth. That's where God the Holy Spirit is going to work with us. Abiding in him, as I have, as we've studied before, is a synonym for walking by the Holy Spirit. To be in fellowship with Christ means you're also walking by means of the Holy Spirit. When you're walking by means of the Holy Spirit, you're going to produce the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, against which there is no no law. The fruit of the Spirit is the basis for reward. And so John says in 1 John 2.28, he says, And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, that is, at the rapture, we may have confidence, that means certainty, because we know that there will be gold, silver, and precious stones, and that there will be a reward, and there will be inheritance, and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. You see, just because you are a believer does not mean that you're automatically going to have an inheritance. You will be an heir of God, an heir of eternal life. You will have a resurrection body, but only if we advance to spiritual maturity and there are there's and there is gold, silver, and precious stones, will we have something to be rewarded? And what we produce in this life by walking by the Holy Spirit gives us the capacity to rule and reign, to judge with the Lord Jesus Christ during the millennial kingdom. If we fail in this life, there will be shame, but do not fear. Eventually. Every tear will be wiped away, and there will be no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain, for the old things have all passed away. There will be a temporary shame and a temporary embarrassment at the judgment seat of Christ for believers who have been failures in this life 
and who have failed to grow and failed to advance to spiritual maturity. But for the believer who makes doctrine his highest priority, for the believer who abides in Christ, for the believer who stays in fellowship, for the believer who advances and grows, there will be reward and there will be a, a blessing in, e- in eternity, in, in eternity future that is far beyond anything we could ever imagine with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning and to, to be able to put these things together and to understand the, the dynamics of, of the spiritual life in this age. And we can understand that there is a, an eternal destiny for us that you have set aside to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ. But, but our responsibilities and, and just exactly how that is manifested is determined by our volition in this age. The first decision is the most important decision. And perhaps there's someone here this morning who needs to make that decision, and that is to believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Scripture says, There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus Christ came to the cross. There he paid the penalty for our sins. He died as our substitute. If we accept that penalty, then we have eternal life. We believe on him. But if we do not, then there is everlasting condemnation. But the second most important decision, the one that faces every one of us every day, is are we going to make the Word of God the highest priority in our life? If we do and we walk by the Spirit, then we will advance to spiritual maturity and there will be rewards and there will be a role and responsibility in the kingdom. But if not, there will be a loss and there will be shame at the judgment seat of Christ. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.